whether you are aware of it or not, there's been a cosmic battle raging from the beginning of the existence of man until today. And it doesn't seem as though over time that's lessened any. In fact, what I honestly believe is it at least appears to be intensifying with time, not lessening at all. And of course, what I'm speaking about specifically is I'm speaking about the battle for life between life and lies. From the time of Adam and Eve, God has been so faithful to do nothing but to speak to his people absolute and complete truth. And those who would hear his voice and hear his words and heed his words, obey his words, submit to it, they find uh, infinite joy and eternal life. But is whereas God has been incredibly faithful, unbelievably faithful to do nothing but speak the truth, Satan as well has been equally as faithful to do nothing but to speak lies and nothing but lies. And for those who, throughout history, it doesn't matter who the person is, for anyone who hears that voice, heeds that voice, it always leads to misery and ultimately to destruction. Now, last week, we, we, we saw Paul, the, the verses right before the one that we're looking at this morning, uh, Paul basically reminded us of who we are as the church. And he said as the church that we are, we are the family of God, amen? We're the family of God. He says that we are the dwelling place of God, that God dwells within us individually, but yet at the same time, when we come together corporately, God makes his, his, his presence manifest with those people. And finally, and the last thing he said, and this is why I bring this up as a reminder, he says that we as a body are stewards of God's word. That is that we are stewards of God's truth. We are to defend the truth. We are to preach the truth. We are to teach the truth and we are to abide by it. Would you agree with that, right? We're, we're all on board there. But here's what Paul shows us in this case. No matter how, we, we, we need to be careful. We need to do all that we can because if we lose this battle, if we lose this battle, horrific terrible things ultimately happen when we don't win the battle between truth and, and lies. And so what we see here is we see kind of a glimpse of what happens when that battle is lost, whether in the home or within the church or more specifically when, it, when that battle is lost in the mind of each and every individual, this is what it looks like. So let's, we don't have a whole lot of time this morning, so I've kind of had to condense it as much as possible, but let's, let's work through it together. The first thing we see with this is the result. We see the result of losing this battle. Look, if you will, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the Bible says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now, when he speaks of latter times here, he's speaking about a specific period of time that sometimes is referred to as the church age. It's simply the period of time that begins with Jesus' first coming and will culminate in his second coming. So it's all of that time, which would have included the, the time when Paul was writing this particular letter to, to Timothy and to the Ephesians. And guess what? It would include our time right here and now as well. We are in the latter times, he says. Now, what he's telling us is ultimately in these latter times that there will be some who will depart from the faith. And this is something that God has expressly, the Holy Spirit expressly told him. Now, I don't know how God told him this. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas. Some believe that he's just referring to the prophecy of Jesus. And in the book of Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus himself said in the latter times, many will walk away, will fall away from the faith, will depart from it. It could be his own prophecy that he made back in Acts chapter 20. If you remember in our introduction of the book, um, he, he basically said there, he says, listen, when I leave, ravenous wolves are going to come in and they're going to rise up within this church trying to lead you away. 
Or a third possibility is just simply the fact is that while he's writing this letter at this particular time, we know that he's, being, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit could very well be laying this on his heart and revealing to him that during this particular period of time, there will be people who will fall away from the faith. Whatever the case, guess what? In the age in which we live, right now, right here, people as we speak are falling away from the faith. And the question is, what does that mean? That's important because there are going to be some people who are going to interpret this as people losing uh, their salvation, right? And, but we don't hold to the fact that you can lose your salvation because you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was a free gift. And if you can't earn it, then there's nothing you can do or not do that's going to cause you to ultimately lose it. It was a free gift of eternal life. We don't believe that. And we don't believe that's what the scriptures teach us. So what does he mean when he talks about uh, falling or departing from the faith? He's talking about the technical term is apostasy. It speaks of a person, and this might be familiar to you with your own experience. It, 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 is, it is speaking of a person who comes in so incredibly close to true saving faith. So close. I mean, everything there seems to be ripe and ready. It seems like the person is, they, they come to the church. Uh, they, 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 uh, I said in the beginning of the service, and I'm going to change this. I said they wear their Mercy Hill t-shirts, and there was like 10 of them. And then I was like, well, I'm not really speaking about you. And so, uh, but, but, but they're all in. They come and they worship. They raise their hands during the music. Uh, they, 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 they serve in the church somewhere. They'll, they'll pray. Uh, they'll even use religious talk and jargon. And he says, but those particular people never truly come to saving faith so close but never quite there and what happens to them is over a period of time through false teaching they're led away they're led away and they go to the point to where they never return to the faith again they're completely apart they separate themselves from the teaching god and now even deny what it is that they once said that they ultimately believed now, this, this evidence, this falling away is a picture all the way through scriptures. This is why people misinterpret it as people losing their salvation. But Jesus speaks about this kind of falling away in the parable of, of the sower and the seed. You remember, there's different types of the seed goes out. It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's truth. And it goes out and it lands on different types of soil. And those different types of soil indicate different conditions of man's heart. And in that, that soil, that rocky soil that he speaks of, it, it, this is what he was referring to, to that, that apostasy that is caused. In, in Luke 8, 13, he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe, they believe for a while and in time for a temptation, uh, in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, this falling away is something that, that, that Timothy would have known firsthand. Because Paul had already mentioned in chapter 1 that there were two men, and he names them, Hymenius and Alexander. He says that these were two men who fell away from the faith. These are people within their congregation that was a part of them, perhaps church members, maybe baptized, most likely baptized within that very church. And now these men, there's nowhere to be found. They were, as John says in 1 John, he says, they were with us, but now they're no longer with us any longer. They've gone out from us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. And we're not talking about going to a different church or moving somewhere. He's just talking about leaving the faith completely. And I don't know about you, but I have firsthand experience, even here at Mercy Hill, seeing people that have meant so much to me. We had fellowship with and we knew each other. And it seems like we were, we were walking in the faith together and we were encouraging each other. I've had people in my past who have taught me the things of God. I've grown under their ministry who today have completely fallen away. They're nowhere to be found. They're gone. 
And so here's what he's trying to say. As difficult as that is, as painful as that is to be able to see whether it be a child or whether it be a friend or another church member or co-worker who's a believer in Jesus Christ to do this, we, mu- we should not be surprised by it because it indeed is going to happen. So what I want you to be aware of is this is why I want to remind you of why we come here on Sunday mornings and why we gather together in small groups and why we gather together one-on-one. We are not here to become better people. We are not here to simply give you principles. We're not calling you, hey, follow us. We're going to give you principles to be a better person. We're not calling you and sitting there and going, hey, listen, we're going to give you some nice little principles that are going to help you to be able to come and to be able to raise nice little well-behaved children. That is not our goal here at all. And some sit back and they go, well, that's why you're not giving us those things, right? Yeah, that's why we're not giving those things. When we are meeting together, what we're calling for is a wholesale change completely changed. We are not talking about, and here's what we have to be careful of. We have to be careful of seeking behavior modification, and we need to be all about uh, radical regeneration. And that is just simply, you don't come and go, okay, I'm going to try to learn how to be a better husband. We're going to come, and we're calling to God to change you at your very heart, to regenerate an old sinful heart in such a way that you can't help but to be the husband that God has called you to be. Not because you're just following some some good instructions, but you can't help it because it's a demonstration of the power of God residing within you. And so this is what we're calling. We're not calling to anybody to, to sit back to a bunch of practical steps on how to be better. We are calling in the church people to be radically changed. Here's why. Because if you are not regenerated, you are in great grave danger of falling away from the faith and never coming back. And what's hard is, is, is people can know so much about the word of God. Their minds are so filled with the word of God and they, they've experienced so much warmth by being amongst God's people that they can actually feel, hey, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimate, everything is good here, but they don't show any true evidence of truly being born again, which we'll get along with later. But this is the outcome, the outcome of this false teaching and losing the battle for truth. The result of that is a falling away in which the person never ultimately recovers. This is the second thing that we see in the text, and that is the cause. What causes such falling away? He says, but what is this cause? He actually gives us two. He says, there's two things working that, that bring this about, and there's two different influences or causes. The first is a demonic influence. He says there, he goes, he goes, those that fall away begin by what? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So the path to, and the road to apostasy begins by exposing oneself to, teach, to, to, to false teaching and errors. He's not talking about somebody who's just, hey, man, I'm interested in listening to this guy. He's talking about somebody who follows, who submits, who devotes themselves on a consistent basis of false teaching. And that individual is danger, is in grave danger because what they begin to do is the longer they begin to listen, the greater distance is from them and the truth of God's word. And they go further and further and further away. And even though they were in the church and they learned all kinds of lessons about the church and all kinds of theology and the church, they've got it in their mind. They're unprotected because the Holy Spirit doesn't reside within them. So when this false teaching comes, there's no defense against it. There's no defense. And so they're led away. They're ultimately deceived. He says deceived by who? Deceitful spirits and by demons. Now, when I say that, uh, um, there's a little part of me, the flesh part of me, not the one part that loves Jesus, but there's a part of me that goes, I feel kind of silly talking about spirits and demons, right? Uh, Because there are some folks that uh, you, you might be sitting there and go, come on, preacher, really? This is 2017. We live in Yulee, Florida. 
This isn't 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts, all right? Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about who the real guilty ones are of leading people astray. It is those crooked nokes, college professors who have agendas to kill our children and the wacky people in Wacko, in Wacko Texas that serve kind of funny Kool-Aid, all right? That's who we really need to be focusing on. That's, that's the problem. But that's not it at all. He says, yeah, they are agents used of God, uh, not of God, but of the enemy. But the source is demonic. Anything that is ultimately against the gospel, adding to or taking away is, comes from when we have to ultimately identify that. I think we make two mistakes. I think the first mistake we often make is to make too much about the power of demons and the presence of demons and the role in the world and the influence of the world. You might meet somebody like this. There's a demon everywhere behind every bush. Oh man, that's demonic, hot stronghold, bro. That's a demonic stronghold. If you're that person, I love you, but I'm going to love you at a distance because you scare me, all right? Uh, it, it just scares me when do it. And if you're the person that when you're driving to work on Monday morning and you get a flat tire because of a nail and the first tweet is or whatever it is, I, I'm not on that mess, but if, if you text me and you go, you got to pray for me, Satan is, you know, a demon is in my tire, I'm probably going to respond, it's probably a nail. It's probably a nail and not a demon, all right? And so there is a way that we can overemphasize that, but we can, we can make another problem, another mistake. And the other mistake is to belittle or to diminish too much the role and the power of the demons in life in each and every day. You know, we have to remember, I know I go through the day and I have to remind myself as you're going through these struggles and, and if you ever worked with like the county on things, and if you're with the county, we love you, all right, we, we, we love you. But if you're trying to work through that, I remember going through the building process of building this building, sitting there going, Lord in heaven, what, what are they going to do? And I remember getting like so angry. It's like the county, the people of the county, right? And so you begin to get angry. And then you have to just kind of be reminded and loving people are going, you're not fighting against the, the county, bro. Fighting against that. And Paul reminds us very clearly, and we all have to be reminded in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces evil in the, uh, in the heavenly places. So what's important about this? The important is we know that if I get up and I tell, and you tell your friends and you tell your family, you know you're going to sound like an idiot. If you say, well, behind this guy's false teaching is Satan and demons, you know you're going to look like an idiot. Here's the problem. Here's what it's at cost. If you don't identify it as that, as what the Bible says, then you put yourself in harm's way again of you being the one who ultimately exposes himself to that teaching and ultimately fall away. You have to know what the danger is to stay away from it. Are you with me on that? So here we have, he says, first of all, the first cause is, is demonic influence. The second cause is human influence. So it is true, the demons are behind it, but the demons don't usually deceive people directly but rather they are using human agents, willing participants, or what we would call false teachers. Now notice in verse two, he says this, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience, consciences are seared. Now what Paul says here is a frightening statement. Here's why. What he's saying is those that are teaching false things and things that are against the church and against Christ, these are not people, false teachers that are trying to confuse people's minds. Uh, these are not just merely nice Good citizens, stand-up people who don't mean harm, that are just, you know, just kind of a little bit of a stray. According to him, these are people who are very much influenced by demons. They are willfully and purposely deceiving those to lead them astray from the truth. And here's one other thing. The other thing is that they don't believe 
what it is that they're teaching themselves. They don't even believe what they're ultimately teaching. Now, think about it just for a moment. You hear somebody, and I'm not going to name any names because, uh, let me say this. I, I, I'm not on Facebook, and I don't know how to tweet if my life depended on it. I don't know how to do any of that, but I'm not judging those who do. It's very helpful because we can find out all kinds of wonderful things. It's like anything, a tool. But I can't be on it because I would, I don't mean this bad, but I would drink heavily if I was on it, okay, as a pastor. I'm, I'm letting you know I would. I don't, but I, I would drink heavily because I would leave the church and I'd be like, look, all the people, they love Jesus. They're raising their hands and everything else. And then people on what they say, would they would say, hey, I'm following this guy, and they would quote some false teacher, and they would do whatever, and then my whole life would blow up, and I would hit the bottle, okay? I'm, I'm just telling you, I, I wouldn't be able to do it at all. It's, 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 it's rough. It's really rough stuff to be able to hear what people are reading and what they're listening to, especially when they think that it's, that it's wonderful. But what he's, what he's saying here is, for example, let me give you an example of this. Say you're watching television and, and this big, bright smile comes up. And there you are, you're sitting. No, you see, you're thinking of people. You're thinking of people, and I'm not mentioning people, all right? Here, I'm trying to give you a chance before next week I name all the people you're listening to, all right? So you're sitting there at the table. You're sitting at the table, and you're writing your checkbook, and you're like, honey, I just don't know how we're going to make it. And then the preacher gets up because you're like, man, we need some religion. <laughs> we need God in this because uh, we can't pay for that, uh, that house and that boat that we sell. Well, we need Jesus, right? So get the Christian music going. Get the Christian. And the guy comes up and he goes, are you struggling? And nope. Financially, are you hurting? Huh? And he goes, do you not know where, how you're going to be able to make these bills? And you're looking at your spouse and go, he's a prophet. No, he's explaining 98% of Americans is what he's doing, right? <laughs> and so he's, he's, like, he's like, well, listen, all you need to do is trust God. God doesn't want you poor. He wants you rich. He wants you wealthy. So here's what you're going to have to do. You need to grease the windows of heaven. Grease the windows of heaven. So what you need to do is you need to grease the windows of heaven because God's got this big storehouse and you just don't have it because you haven't asked for it. And let me tell you what's going to ultimately happen is if you, if, you, if you can tap into that and oil those tracks of those windows, he opens it up. He's going to give you so much money. You're going to have to get a bigger bank account because the bank account you have can't fit it all, all right? And so they get up there and all of a sudden you're sitting there. This is good. Well, how do I grease the wheel? What do I do? And he goes, you need some seed money. And if you go ahead and you're right, if you give some seed money, so you've got to pour into something. And if you pour into something, then ultimately you'll get a whole bunch of it back. And I'm going to put my address at the bottom of the screen so you know where to send that seed money. Here's where the seed money is, right? Now, some of you are not laughing or anything, so I'm very concerned of where your money is going at this particular point. Now, there are some little bits and pieces of truth within that, but they're using it for their own selfish gain. Do you see that? They're leading people astray. And so, so there you have it, and, and then you're right. And by the way, you know he doesn't believe this, right? If he believed that it was through giving out seed money that you got money, then wouldn't he be contacting you for your info to send you seed money, right? You don't get that, do you? All right, just listen to the CD. You'll, you'll get it later, okay? But if he really believed what he was saying, he would give you money. He wouldn't be taking your money if he believed that's what it took. Instead, this is where he is. So he's a false teacher. And you say, well, Brother Mike, are you saying that some of these guys and some of these women are intentionally deceiving people? That's not what I'm saying. It's what the Word of God is saying. They know exactly what they're going to do. Well, how can anybody do that and, and live with themselves with their conscience? Well, simple. Their, their conscience is seared. That's what he says, right? In the word of God, their conscience is seared. Now, that word can be translated in several different ways, but I think the most accurate way he's talking about is the idea that their consciences have been cauterized, burned or cauterized. 
Basically, if you take a, a hot branding iron, you put it up against an animal to brand it, what it's doing is it's killing that skin, it's killing those nerves so that they don't have any kind of feeling there anymore. And that's what he says that these t- teachers do. When they first start off, they're being underneath the influence of demonic teaching. They're being, they're being misleading. They're deceiving people on purpose. Their conscience is really bothering them when they begin to do it. But guess what? When you keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, their conscience becomes hardened. It becomes quieter and quieter until it's completely silent. That's why false teachers can get up, teach with a big smile, be completely confident. They know that they're deceiving people, but they're fine in ultimately doing it. Why? Because they sleep at night. No conscience is keeping them awake at night. They're fine. That conscience is well burned out long ago. And so these, this, this is ultimately the cause. We have a demonic source, and we also have a human source. Now, let's look at the, very f- the, the final thing here. We have to ask ourselves a question. And the question is simply this, is how do we determine if someone is, in teach, is teaching error? How do we recognize these false teachers? And so this is going to be under the third point, uh, um, uh, which is substance. See, this is, this is very hard to, to see and to recognize false teachers at first. And the reason is, is because they don't wear a certain style of clothing. All right, it's not like they all like, you know, bought up all the old remaining members only jackets and, you know, they're all kind of just like, hey man, he, that's, that's him. All right, only the old gener- elder generation gets that. All right, all the young people are like, members only, what is that? All right, so, son, I'll tell you later. And so, um, so, so it, it's, it, it's this kind of idea where, um, where, where they, they, don't, they don't look any different. I mean, you got that, right? Like, they don't show up at the church and go, hey, listen, my name's Ted. Um, I'm a false teacher and I'm here to deceive you. All right, they, they don't, they, it would be nice. It'd be nice if they did. It's just not the way that it works. There's nothing about them physically that stands out. They don't come with horns. You know, they don't come with a tip tail and, you know, pitchfork, any of that. They don't have like a mark of the beast tattoo of, you know, wolf and sheep clothing. They just don't come announcing these things. In fact, they look very much like us and they talk very much like us. They use Christian vernacular. They know all the Christian, they knew all the Christian garb. You know, some of you, you know, hey man, you got to get under the spout where the glory falls out. Amen. And they know all that and people are like, this must be a good guy, right? And so they're listening to all this Christian, uh, this, this religious jargon. So they no difference. So how do you know the difference. Let me say this. You must be able to detect false teaching. You must. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you must be able to recognize it. Why? Because it is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life of death for you. It's a young, we have so many parents and I love it. And we are being fruitful and multiplied like nobody's business in this place. But I got to tell you, man, you must, for the sake of your children, be able to rightly divide what is true and what is false. How do you do it, though? If you can't just look at them, if you can't just hear expressly what is, what is it, the substance of their message, the substance of their message. So now, how, how do we get that? Look at verse 3. Paul says, he says, he says, who, he, speaking of them, speaking of the false teachers, he goes, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from the foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So here's what he's doing. Within this little verse, I think he's giving us two aspects of false teaching of how you can identify it. Because I think these two aspects are evidence in all false teaching, okay? All false teachers use at least these two things. There are two things. First, first of all, is they love to twist the truth. They just like to twist it a little bit, all right? So what he does is they base what is biblical, but then they take a, a founding theology and they twist it a little bit. Let me give you an example of that. So here he talks about marriage and he talks about abstaining from marriage and abstaining from 
um, from, from certain foods. Well, there are some biblical principles that do apply to those things. For example, the Bible says that you should get married. You know, it's good to marry. But on the other side, look, if you remain single, God has given a gift of singleness to some. And it's really, really good. Why? Because if you think you could be used married, you could really be used single, right? You don't have that old ball and chain way. Oh, well, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you, don't, you, you don't have to be committed and, and, and be separated in your affections, in your direction, right? You guys got that. It's just all Jesus all the time. So that's certainly a good thing for some people to remain single if they've been given that gift. On the other side, you, you've got people with food. And sometimes we, don't, don't, we put apart food to fast, Right? You do know what that is, right, when you're, when you're trying to pray. So I've, I've asked our elders, for example, and you'll be very encouraged by this. People are like, hey, what are we going to do about the growth? What are we going to do about room? All that kind of stuff. I said, well, we're planning a church. That's going to be one of the things that ends up happening. We thank God for that. But to be honest with you, we don't know what in the world we're doing. All right? Isn't, isn't that encouraging? We don't know what we're doing. So here's what we're doing. Well, you we don't know what to do. Do what you know to do. And so what we begin to do is I said, guys, for the entire month, all I want you to do is pray and fast. Not like continually, but just to fast and pray and to seek God and go, God, we need your help. You, you, you do what it is, whatever it is that you want to do. We just need your help. So those are biblical principles. Do you see that? Well, what do they do? They twist it. And they sit there and go, hey, listen, being single, you agree is good, right? Yeah, it could be good. Hey, you agree that, that abstaining from food sometimes could be good, right? He goes, then why don't you go all the way? Why don't you just dismiss marriage altogether? And why don't you just dismiss you know, certain types of food altogether? So they push it and they twist what is normally right and they twist it. That's why it's so hard to detect because there's elements of truth in it, but it's clouded in, in these false teachings and these ultimate lies. And so here's, here's where he is. And so he talks about this, same with marriage, same with all these things. So they, they, they distort it. What's the other thing they do? The second thing they do is they belittle or they deny God's love. They try to make little, they, they try to demean God's love for you and me. I want you to really hear this part. How are they doing it here? Well, let me explain. He says, he says, he says, he says for, forbid marriage and require abstinence from the foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on in verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here's what he's saying. They will often demean God's goodness. Okay, so they will take what is good and they will call it bad. They will take what is bad and they will call it good. Uh, and so here's how they do it. So these things are good. Marriage is good. Right? Seriously, right? All right, it, it's good. Some of you are like, yeah, it's good in concept, right? And then, yeah, then you get married. And you kind of work. Well, let's move on from there. Let's, let's, let's talk about something we can completely and utterly agree with, and that's food. Food is good, amen? Right? Food is good. And so when you go to Longhorn Steakhouse, and you go up there, and there's this glorious piece of beef that they serve there called the outlaw. And if you go up and you order this thing, now you'll have to sell a kidney to purchase it. But if you get up there and you out for the, ask for the outlaw, you ask for the outlaw and you will get this piece of beef that cannot be contained on one plate. It will fall over one on each side and they bring this behemoth out and it is slathered with this garlic butter sauce and you are sitting there and you will take your knife and you will take your fork and you will, who cares who you're eating with? You're just smiling at everybody. It could be an enemy. Hey, I love you. And you're just waving and you put that thing in your mouth and you chew for a minute. You put a smile and a tear in your eye and you say, God is good. Yes? God is good. 
Now, you, you don't want to get where the heathen do and go, this cow is awesome. I love you, cow. No, this is what God does. He gives us marriage and he gives us good things that he has created to use. Obviously, what is God given must be God governed. He wants one wife, not six wives, right? He wants one stake, not six stakes. So it's all within God's parameters, but it is to bless you for you to know how much you are loved in certain aspects so that you will glorify and thank God in prayer. That, that's how it works. You, you see the goodness of God? So how are they questioning the goodness of God or denying the goodness of God? When they say, when they say you need to forbid, you, we forbid marriage and you need, not, you need to abstain from certain types of food, they're saying, if you want to be right with God, these are the things you have to do. If you want to be right with God, there's certain things that you got to do away with. There's certain things you got to, you, you can't eat this, you can't do it. He's talking about works. You know what they're demeaning, how they're demeaning God's love for them? Is they're demeaning what God accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. They're saying that Jesus paid most of your debt, but he didn't pay all of your debt. There's still some things that you need to do. There's still some parts of the wall that divided you and God, and some of that is still up, and you've got to be able to do it. There's still some wrath that is remaining that for you. Yeah, Jesus took away 80% of it, but the next 20%, there's something that you have to do. And what it does is it denies and rejects and it, and it devalues the love of God. When the word of God says in the book of Romans that, there's no, that we know that God loves us, how? That while we were yet sinners, you say it, well, Christ died for us, right? That's how we know. So anybody comes adding anything to the gospel or subtracting anything in the gospel, guess what? It's, it's, it's not Christ. It, it's, it's not of God. It, it, it's false. Two things I think that we can ultimately do here to be able to uh, defend ourselves against it. The first is we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. Are you in the faith? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that about, that about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He said, look, you can learn all you want of the word of God, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, protecting you, sealing you until the day of redemption, you will be swept away. You must be converted. You got that? Now, it says, how do we know whether we're born again or not? Well, simple, Mike. We walk an aisle, we say a prayer, we sign a card, and we're, and we're, and we're baptized, and we know that we're saved. We're in like Flint. No. I don't want to demean any of those things. That might be the process and what you did when God saved you to walk an aisle or do, do whatever. I'm not demeaning any of that. What I'm saying is none of that is evidence that a person came to faith in Jesus Christ. You want to pass the test as Paul talks to? Go to 1 John. You know what he says? Here's the test. These things are written so that you know that you have eternal life. You love Jesus. You love holiness. You love obeying him. You love his people. You love the lost and you desire to make a difference in the world for the glory of God. You love those things? Great evidence that you're on the right track, that you've been born again. But you have to determine whether you are born again or not. If you are not, you are, you are at grave danger of being led astray. As much as you think you know within your mind, you're in grave danger if the Holy Spirit's not within protecting you. Second thing, follow an example. Follow an example. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. He says, now, he says, he's talked about the Bereans. You're familiar with them. The Bereans would listen to Paul. He says this, he says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Here's the second thing that you need to do. You need to be a really, really skilled listener. 
You need to know the Word of God. You need to study this thing. This cannot be this haphazard. Look, you know there are still some people living their Christian life based on what a preacher taught them 20 years ago, and their knowledge of the Word of God hasn't developed past 20 years ago. They're at the same exact level because they haven't been in the Word. They haven't been rightly dividing the Word of truth. They haven't sat under biblical preaching. They haven't done any of those things. You must know the Word of God. When I was in seminary, uh, kind of the second time in going through my doctoral work, at the very end, I was scared to death because I knew that I had to pass this oral exam, this three to four hour oral exam. I had to get up and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And one of the guys that was helping prep, now it sounds more glorifying. It's just a religion thing. It's not like a, like a doctor. All right. So um, it's, it sounds real, whatever, but any monkey can do it. And so, so we're kind of in, <laughs> and so, so when I was in it, they go, but here's what you're going to have to do. You've got about 200 different sources that you've cited for, for this dissertation. And he says, and in it, he says, uh, you, 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 do you know who it is that you're citing? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm citing it right there. All the material is there. And he goes, no, do you know where they went to school? Do you know who they studied under? Do you know where they were whatever? He says, because that's some of the stuff that we're going to ask you. Because you have got to be incredibly wise to know where this stuff is coming from that you're using and you're basing your truth upon. You need to do due diligence. Now listen, that was from, for some crummy piece of paper. All that work was for some crummy piece of paper. How much more important and how much more diligent should you and I be when it comes to our very souls and the souls of those around us, including our children? Far more diligent. Brother, why don't you come at this time and we're going to pray. Why don't you stand with me? And we're going to pray and we're going to respond. The invitation is super simple. Here's the invitation. You don't know Jesus, man. Repent and believe in him. You may feel like you are close, but let me ask you, are you truly born again? Have you passed?